so it's uh, great to see, mashallah, so many people. Is this how it's been every day? Ajib. Mashallah. So, alhamdulillah, bifadlillah, this is actually the first time that I'm formally addressing you, right? Because the last time it was some kind of. I thought it was a good tarbiyah session, me, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, I'm sticking to my guns. I, I think I'm the only person out of everyone so far who actually explained what tarbiyah was, right? Yeah. Sah? They all went into the heart and humility and intention and ish, and no one actually explained what tarbiyah was, right? So a thanks would be appreciated, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, um, so welcome to everyone online as well. Um, today, alhamdulillah, special because um, to, to those who are online, we're broadcasting directly from uh, the De Vere Hotel in, in Wokefield Park in Reading or Berkshire. Um, effectively, a London crowd with many, mashallah, visitors uh, as well from the rest of the UK, Manchester represent, mashallah, a few chido massive here, alhamdulillah, as well. And uh, uh, we have uh, from Scotland, mashallah, nice uh, contingent, a large contingent, uh, Malaysia, mashallah, uh, and abroad from the States and Canada. But as the Nasser Jangda keeps saying, nobody cares. Which huh? <laughs> <laughs> is so bad because me, I love my Canadians, man. But he doesn't. So what can I do, you know? So, don't be jealous, huh? Well, I'm saying I'm supporting the Canadians, yeah? I'm Canadians' number one fan. So, okay. Um, so today, inshallah, what we thought we'd do is that we'd start off, inshallah, with our uh, hissa, our section of study. And then we can do the fun and chilling session, uh, inshallah, a little bit uh, later. And um, it's going to be a great lesson because it's a, it's a wonderful opening by... Uh, Shaykh Al-Uthameen alayhi rahmatullah and Shaykh Muhammad Al-Mukhtar Al-Shanqiti hafidahullah ta'ala in this particular chapter. But I just also wanted to mention a, a slightly a sad uh, uh, note that uh, one of our beloved brothers, the Amir of, of Qabila Shams, which effectively is organizing uh, most of the logistics behind Yom Summit, Imad, his grandmother, passed away this morning. So I ask you all to make dua for her. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive her and have mercy upon her and to enter her into his highest and best paradise under his throne. Allahumma ameen. For if you could make that dua as well in our absence too. So, um, we are now starting with the new notes. You should have uh, all downloaded the new notes from the portal and from the forum. Um, uh, they were placed, I think, there this morning. And uh, I've decided, you know what it is? I don't know if you noticed that I, I changed the style. You know, before what I used to do was to put like one line and then one line, one line of English, then one, one line of Arabic, and then leave the page empty. Because I had this kind of, you know, delusion that you were actually going to write some notes on that page, right? And then I realized that actually no one is writing any notes at all anywhere, right? Unless they're writing on some kind of book. And then, of course, the transcribing team is producing such an incredible piece of work every week. We're up to date, by the way. If you want to go back to the transcribed notes, this is lesson nine, lesson five, six, seven, eight, which were kind of like uh, due. 
they're all up now uh, live now they're on the portal and the forum um, so what, what I thought that you know I don't think actually anyone's writing on these pages so that's why I, then I gave half of the page to the Arabic and then the other half to the English so the notes have now cut down into only three pages do you want me to continue like that? Yeah, I, I'm right. I don't think anyone actually writes anything there. And it's too small a space, right? Anyway, so I think we'll continue in that light uh, as well. Um, uh, there's also, um, so we're going to start reading from that. Um, that will be um, page one uh, of that that we will start with. And those who have the sharh the, in the Arabic, then that will be page 182. The obligations of wudu and its description. So that's page 182. There's one thing I wanted to clarify. Um, remember when I said that whenever you have the lesson, make sure you go back to the transcribed notes because I review the notes every week and any corrections, any spelling corrections and so on, then I, 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 I add them as a, an addendum or a footnote or something like that. And likewise for last lesson and the previous lesson, I was uh, talking about al-muajaha, meaning that which is facing. So we were talking about washing the face, and then the ruling that applies to the hair that's on the face. You know, we de- we described the fact that if it's very thin hair, then the water must get to the skin, and then if it's very thick hair, then it's enough then to just wipe your uh, uh, comb your fingers through the beard. And we spoke about the the the, the hair which is mustarsal, meaning, um, uh, and I having my, my blonde moment, okay? Or is, am I not allowed to say that anymore? Is that not, it's not PC, yeah? It's, yeah, I've got a PC monitor at the front. My silly moment, okay? Um, I translated it as roots. Actually, it's not the roots. It's the exact opposite of the roots. It's the ends. But the ruling is the same. I mean, what I was saying to you is that the uh, ends must also be wetted. So if you have a beard, then you will be not only just going through, okay, and combing, but also going through to the very end as well. It's not necessarily if you have a thick beard that you have to get to the roots of the actual uh, uh, beard itself. And I gave some examples that this is a concession when it comes to getting to the roots uh, that is given to women in Rusul, and that will come in its right time. So I do ask you to review those last two uh, notes. So let's read in the Arabic first, and then inshallah, um, to start us off. So, باب فروض الوضوء وصفته أو وصفته as well, and I'll explain the, the, the reasons why uh, the scholars differed over that. So, uh, Imam al-Hajjaw alayhi rahmatullah, he says, فروضه ستة غسل الوجه والفم والأنف منه وغسل اليدين ومسح الرأس ومنه الأذنان وغسل الرجلين وترتيب والموالى وهي أن لا يؤخر غسل عدو حتى ينشف الذي قبله. So this is the first page translated as the obligations of wudu and its description, and its description. The obligations in brackets of wudu are six, and then we list them: washing the face and the mouth and the nose are included in that. Washing the forearms, wiping the head and the ears are included in that. Washing the feet, maintaining the above order, so keeping it in order, and then finally the sixth one, maintaining continuity, meaning that one doesn't delay the washing of a limb until the one before it dries up. Okay? Al-Mu'ala, meaning continuity, meaning that one doesn't delay the washing of a limb until the one before it dries up. And I'll explain all of these in detail insha'Allah. Let's get straight into the commentary and look at the word which has been used to start this off. Actually it's the first time, considering that now this is what, a year and 
a bit. We haven't actually so far, surprisingly, despite the fact that this is a book of law and, and fiqh uh, um, and jurisprudence where we're talking about halal, haram, and sunnah and this, that, we haven't actually covered the concept of the word fard, okay, or faraz, yeah, for the packs out there. So, so the word faraz, okay, which we all understand as, you know, obligatory, this in its uh, essence, fard, it, it's a masdar, it's a verbal noun. When we speak uh, from a grammatical point of view, the word fard is a verbal noun, it's a masdar. And uh, according to the grammarians, in principle, uh, the masdar, verbal nouns, do not have uh, plurals. You don't pluralize a, a verbal noun. But sometimes, in principle, and this is like a rule of the Nahwiyin, which is uh, as Sheikh al Uthameen. He mentions, but the interesting thing is that because um, we actually have more than one fard, we have more than one obligation. Then, because of the need, we have then given it a uh, a plural, and that plural is furud, okay, furud, and that's what the chapter title has as obligations. Some scholars consider the most correct uh, singular of the word furud to be fard. And Sheikh Muhammad Muhtar Shankiti, he said, no, it's Faridah. Faridah. And Faridah is also acceptable. And Faridah is, when we, will, when we uh, use the word, Faridah means the obligatory thing. But also because it's in its feminine form, when we will talk about the prayer, we'll actually call it the Faridah. So I'm now going to go and pray my Faridah, meaning I'm going to go and pray my Furaka Dhuhr, for example, without any other prayers attached to it. So sometimes we give that specific name when something is individually obligatory. So Fard, Faridah is a, 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 both of them are, uh, 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 both can be used quite, quite easily. Now, um, the Sheikh, um, he wants to explain why is it that the word Wudu is then uh, uh, I, I actually you know what you know let me just explain to you what the word fard uh, comes from the word fard itself it has a number of meanings the word fard ha, means to obligate just like we classically understand it also means to cut and Sheikh Uthaymin he goes that in its original linguistic meaning it means al-hazu wal-qata'u al-haz and qata' which both actually mean to cut. But there's a difference between them in the Arabic language. The word haz, okay, is used when you cut something or nick something, right? But you don't separate it. So it's not cutting something into two. But you might, you know, go all the way to the bone, maybe. Or you might just take the top. This is a haz, like a cut. Whereas the qata' is, includes the haz, but it will separate something into two, into pieces. It's the proper cut all the way uh, through and fard in the in the language uh, means um, that also fard means to measure something as well. Also fard means a share. It's uh, used in a in a manner of nasib, meaning that if I give you your fard, meaning I've given you your set amount, okay, your set quota. These are all its linguistic meanings, but from a technical meaning. From a hukm shari point of view, then in the Akhtar al-Ulama, according to the majority of the scholars, the word is a synonym for the word wajib. Okay, the word wajib. Now it's interesting, obviously, with the majority of us being Pakistan, we have in our minds a natural distinction between the word far, faraz and wajib. Um, we have that because 
We are Pak, Indian, Bengali, most of us, okay? And that entire subcontinent, of course, is following the madhab of Abu Hanifa alayhi rahmatullah. And this is ultimately legal terms. So our vernacular, our uh, uh, vocabulary when it comes to even Islamic legal terms is set by uh, our tradition, our legal tradition, which comes from our parents, which comes from, of course, the madhab that we follow, which is the madhab of Imam al-A'zam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi And Abu Hanifa does have a differentiation. He differentiates between what a fard is and a wajib. But let's just look at the majority, the majority of the world, the three imams, the majority of the scholars, the muhaddithin, they all made a very, they made it very, very clear. The word wajib means the word fard. Both of them mean obligatory. There's no, there's no difference in consequence. There's no difference in, um, in, uh, in its definition. And what is that? What does that mean? What does wajib mean? What does fard mean? That which has been commanded to. Uh, that which has been commanded to meaning and it is absolutely necessary to do it is absolutely necessary to do and it's ruling that's how it would that's how you would define it as a word but it's ruling is something different we've covered this a number of times who can tell me what the the ruling of the word wajib and fard is Okay, repeat it again and try to make it a little bit more accurate. It's something which you have to do. Okay. And now, you said something that fard, wajib, is something that you have to do. And if you do it, this is what you're saying, you are rewarded. I want just another word in that definition to make it a bit more accurate. Anyone? No. No, 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 that's the second part. Still within this first portion. Correctly is a given. Say again. Good. According to the sunnah. Meaning that it has to be done correctly but with an intention to do it. Sometimes you might be forced into doing an act where you have no intention to do it. Sometimes you might do something accidentally as well. So if you want to be rewarded for it, it has to be imtithalan. Meaning that we have to have an intention to follow the Prophet ﷺ or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that command. Or the, or the way that the Prophet ﷺ showed us to do that command. So that's the first part. Good. You are rewarded. It's something that has to be done and you are rewarded for doing it. Yes? Carry on, yeah? And the second part? If you leave it, yes. Okay, okay, good. All right, I mean, that's, that's, uh, even, that's not even necessary, that much detail, but correct. The one who doesn't do it is punished. The one who doesn't do it is punished. And that word punished, of course, refers to, depending upon the type of obligation, okay, uh, that means in the akhirah, meaning it's a sin, all right? The reason that he mentions that in the akhirah is um, just to make it accurate. There are possibilities that a person could be punished in this life. But that's not unique to be. That's not unique to an obligation, okay? For example, and that's actually what we're going to be covering over the next few days. All right. When it comes to the Islamic ruler, he is able. He has the the leeway to make certain things which are not even in the Quran and Sunnah obligatory upon you. That, that don't even have a basis, okay? So. You're right, you're right, that maybe from an accuracy point of view, it's important to introduce whether one is punished in this life or the, or the hereafter. But the punishment in this life will, will, will vary from, from action to action. Sometimes it won't actually be a physical action. 
so other people can't even see whether you're doing it or not. It might be an internal thing. There are many internal obligations. For example, it's, it's obligatory to not backbite, for example. Okay? Or it's obligatory to have good thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah? Husnul So that's why it's not always a punishment in the uh, dunya. Okay, so this is according to the majority of the scholars. But Abu Hanifa alayhi rahmatullah has something a little bit different. What did Abu Hanifa say? He said that the fard, al-fardu ma kana thabitan bidalil qata'i al-thabut wa dalala. This is a classic legal definition for the Hanafi school. That the obligatory act, the fard, is that which is established with a definite evidence with a expressly uh, indicative meaning, with a very clear meaning, or a very clear indication. Let me explain two points here, okay? The words that we want to use is, yani uh, al al-qata'i, or qati' al-thubut, and qati' al-dalala. Al-thubut and al-dalala. Thubut comes from the word thabt, Something which is thabit means that which has been definitely, without doubt, authentically established, meaning narrated. Like Quran, for example, or like a very, very authentic hadith, okay, which is mutawatir. I'll explain this in a minute. So, first, we're going to deal with the authenticity side. That's what qati'a thubut. Qati'i means d- definitive. There's no, you know, uh, there's no uh, uh, discussion after it. It's absolutely guaranteed. The opposite of speculative. Okay, so it is a hundred percent definite. It's established, and then qatiyat dalala. Now the word dalala comes from dalla. Dalla means to guide. Okay, and the dalala is is uh, 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 the something uh, which is a dalil, right? Which we call an evidence. It's the evidence of something, right? So we might see footsteps, and then that footstep shows it's a proof that someone was there. Okay, so it leads us to where we want to get to. We don't want the footsteps. We want to go to where the footsteps are going. So that's why whenever we want to establish a ruling, we need to establish the dalil, the evidence, because it leads us without any doubt to the final consequence. Okay, so the dalala is that which guides us. Now, in a legal term, it's referring to that when we're given a hadith, there's no qualms about its meaning. There's no kind of hidden potential meaning or some kind of second or third meaning. It's absolutely clear. Like, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ not two, not three, ahad. Okay? The word ahad cannot be, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, 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 interpreted uh, into three different understandings. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So what you're seeing Abu Hanifa do, if you step back actually and take a stock of his translation or his definition, I should say, what he's trying to do is to take doubt out of the equation. So we're not going to have any doubt with respect to its authenticity and we're not going to have any doubt with respect to its meaning. If we have that ruling in that manner, these two conditions are fulfilled, this is what we're going to call a fard. That's what's going to be called a fard. And if we establish a fard, this is what Abu Hanifa then goes further and and says, okay, he goes, then we're going to have then certain legal consequences that follow on from that. For example, if um, there was a person, uh, let's, let's think of a, a, a fard act. It's fard to pray Salatul Fajr. Agreed? Yes? It's obligatory to pray Salatul Fajr. If a person misses Salatul Fajr because he oversleeps, then he will be punished. 
Okay, if he was part of that, if he, for example, went to sleep early and you know something happened and it wasn't his fault, then of course he's not punished. We have the hadith. The Prophet said, when a person wakes up, then he prays. When he wakes up, and khalas. But if this if this person was, you know, he knows us, I'm not going to wake up for fajr, and therefore, and he 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 keeps on staying awake and playing around and messing about, and he knows that if he doesn't go to bed right now, I'm not going to wake up for fajr, and then as a result of his actions, he doesn't wake up for fajr, then he is punished. Okay. A third person will look at his, his uh, uh, clock, look at the time, and say, you know what, I can't be doing Fajr in the morning, man. Sack that. Yeah. I can't be, man. I, I, want, I, want, a, I want a 10 hour sleep, and 7 hours isn't going to cut it. And you know, it's not that important anyway. I'll pray, you know, before, as long as I get it done before Dhuhr, then it's okay. Right? Some kumbakwas like that, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever he thinks. This guy now is playing in a very, very dangerous area. He is now. Not only uh, not doing the fard, but he is intentionally not doing the fard. We're going to leave the ruling upon this person to decide for a minute. Then you've got some complete freak, okay? Scenario number four. He comes along and he says, you know what? I don't know what you guys are killing yourself in the morning for, okay? Just wake up at nine o'clock and go to work. There's no problem. This fajr prayer is only for the people who wake up early. And as for the rest of the, the, the people, we, we need to be productive. We're in a modern society. And you know what? As long as I pray one or two prayers in a day, then who cares about praying the Fajr? So he denies basically the obligation of the prayer. According to the scholars, because the Fajr prayer is a fard, this person would be leaving Islam by that action. He's denying that which is established by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's denying the obligatory act. So he, by that, he enters into disbelief. Now Abu Hanifa, because of this consequence, this now person ending up into disbelief, he wants to be very, 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 very careful. He wants to make sure that people don't end up in that situation by just, you know, by mistake or by just some easy kind of scenario. So what does he want to do? He wants to reduce as far as possible those things which are actually far. Do you understand his, his rationale? He wants to make sure that, you know what, we only restrict such a severe consequence to the absolute bare minimum possible. And how is he going to do that? He's going to make the conditions of, of, of meeting out a fard as tight and as restricted as possible. And then if those conditions are met, then he's like, well, you know what, I tried my best for you, mate. Yeah, I tried to, you know, really, really find an excuse for you, but you're taking you know, liberties now and good luck to you. So what does he try to do next? Any other thing which we meaning the majority might consider to be a fard, he will try to bring down to the level of wajib. And how will he define that which is wajib? مَا ثَبَتَ بِدَّلِلْ ذَنِّي That which has been established, but only via a speculative uh, evidence, meaning in authority, meaning in authenticity, I should say. And it's speculative in its meaning, in its dalala, meaning that the way that it indicates its potential meanings, there might be a second meaning, might be a third meaning. It's not very clear in what it's trying to say. The scholars differed over the tafsir or the sharh of that actual concept. And so because it has that kind of one uh, uh, aspect to it, speculation, you're in doubt. Okay, what, what doubt isn't the right word, but I mean, it's not absolute clear. It's not, as we said, qata'i. It's the opposite of qata'i. Or for example, the hadith itself is not absolutely supreme mutawatir. Okay. And we're going to talk about that in a second, meaning super authentic, absolutely no doubt about it. Then we're going to rule this action to be a wajib. If something comes via, uh, if a ruling comes via this way, via evidence, 
that is not is speculative in its authenticity, okay, meaning that it's specul it's not hundred percent confirmed its authenticity or in its meaning, then we're going to consider that to be a wajib. And the re- the main the main um, the uh, if you want to really understand um, what this is all about, okay, this goes back to a age old argument uh, concerning hadith. And this is the this is and I want to now introduce the concept that I want to cover now, the concept of the khabar uh, ahad uh, or the khabar wahid, which is the singular narration. Okay, so when we talk about the, the, the sciences of hadith, okay, there are many many ways to to uh, define the ahadith and divide them up into categories. Many, many ways. You can divide them by narrators, you can divide them by the type of authenticity, you can divide it by meaning, you can divide it by the the status of narrators, and so on and so forth. There is also another way of defining or categorizing hadith by the amount of narrators at each stage. Okay? At each stage of the chain. Remember we covered before that the word chain means isnad or sanad. Okay? And so for example, we have the Prophet ﷺ at the top. And he, for example, will narrate a hadith. And he will narrate it to a companion who hears that, who might be, for example, Abu Huraira radiallahu an. And then a tabi'i, meaning a, a, a man who has met a companion, who's a believer, who has met a companion in a meaningful fashion and passed away, all right, in that kind of manner, believer and so on and so forth. This is the definition of a tabi'i. He then narrates it from the companion, like Abu Huraira. And then someone else who's a tabi'i, tabi'i then narrates it. Actually, it can go either way. It can go uh, along the same. He might narrate it to another tabi'i. He might narrate it to another six tabi'i from his neighbors, for example. Right? Where he narrates it, that's important as well. Then he might narrate it to those that generation underneath him. So young students, for example, and so on and so forth. So I want you to look at the different uh, at, uh, 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 levels. The, the, the different generations, if you like, of narrators. We have the Prophet ﷺ at the top. And then underneath that, we have the companions. And then underneath that, then we have the tabi'een. And then underneath that, we have the atba'a tabi'een, the followers of the followers. And then after, underneath that, we might have the imams, the imams of hadith and so on. Underneath that, we might have the teachers of these, uh, the students of these imams. And in this kind of generation, you're starting to get now the collectors of hadith, like Ahmed or like Malik certainly. And then a couple later, you'll find Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmidhi and Ahmed and so on and so forth. And then they will actually write it down. We've covered this before, the basic structure of a senate. I want you to imagine that if the Prophet ﷺ is narrating a hadith and only one companion hears, from, hears that hadith, Okay, from thousands, it does make us think. We think, hmm, interesting. Why did the rest didn't uh, narrate that? It makes us think. Okay, now what that hmm moment of reflection leads us to is important. According to the majority of the imams, it doesn't mean anything, because you know what? He's a companion. It's that's good enough for us. So okay, we now go on to the next generation. Now, if a major companion narrates a hadith, the major companions who are narrators of hadith have many students. And they would then be teaching that, that hadith to many students. If he then only narrates a hadith to one person, okay, to one person, one tabi'i, we'll have to say, say to ourselves, hmm, why is that? Why is it only to one person when he has thousands of students? It will make us question, okay? If this now tabi'i, this imam, he then narrates this hadith again to only one person, and I want you to imagine... We have like, what, a couple hundred people here or whatever, I don't know, okay? And I am now narrating a, a statement 
And this is in this, you know, land of non-Muslims in, where people are not really listening as carefully as the Alpha Hadith. And we are able to gather this many people at that time. Over there, there were thousands in the circles that are memorizing every single letter that comes from the, from the, 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 the lips of these imams. So it's very, it's, it's, it's strange that we come across a Hadith where there's only one person narrating for one person, narrating for one person, and so on and so forth. In fact, it's so strange that this happens that the scholars called it gharib. Now, gharib actually means something strange. Okay, the word gharib means strange. And so what I want to say to you is that the scholars then defined hadith into two types, into two general types. They said either a hadith is a khabar wahid or a khabar ahad, meaning a singular narration, or it is a hadith mutawatir. Now let me just explain to you what hadith mutawatir means. A hadith mutawatir means that you know when you look at every generation of the narrators in that hadith, in that chain, when you're looking at this, the narrator, for example, the companion narrates it to tabi'een, there's like not one tabi'i, there's not five, there's maybe 70, or there's 20, or there's 10. And then when he narrates it, he's narrating it to another 10, or 15, or 20, or whatever. And then when he narrates it, there's narrating another 50 or 60. That's one aspect, large numbers, or we should say significant numbers. The second interesting thing though, of course, is the way that these narrators are grouped geographically. Now, I want you to imagine that if I make a mistake now, if I make a mistake in my transmission of a statement, and 200 odd people narrated that, that statement, a person from the outside might say 200 people narrated that statement. It must be true, okay? But if I made the mistake in this single sitting, all you've done is transmit a mistake. That doesn't make this statement that all 200 people go out and say, like if I just say, guys, you know what, guess what? The, it's sunny outside. Because my phone says it's sunny outside. All right? Well, you, you know, you lot have, mashallah, because you agreed to turn off all your internet or whatever, whatnot, just are going to have to agree with me and say, right, okay. Uh, if he says it's sunny outside, he's re- received the news. Now, I'm not realizing that that's actually referring to tomorrow. Okay? But then when I go tomorrow and I sit with another group of people somewhere else, another 50 people or 200 people, and I say to them, actually today is sunny, right? Yesterday was rainy. And you guys now go out and tell everyone, you know what? It's sunny right now. You've made a mistake. The numbers didn't help you. Yes? The numbers did not help the readers outside, people on the internet, people on Facebook. All they remember is that 200 people immediately related this statement. So I want to say to you that just numbers by itself doesn't mean too much. If we are able to add different locations, so if 200 people from Malaysia, for example, confirm that I said that it's sunny outside, or if 200 people outside this building are seeing the weather and they say that yes, it is, <coughs> this adds to the certainty of, this, of my narration. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not just numbers which is taken into the concept of tawatur. It's also the possibility of mistakes and the possibility of lying. For example, <coughs> I could say, guys, listen to me, a tenner for each one of you, tenner, uh, ten bucks, yeah, because obviously have all the fungi online, yeah, they don't know what ten pounds is, yeah. But the uh, uh, Americans I'm talking about, the, if I say, listen, I'll give you ten bucks to all of you just to say this following statement. Are you ready? And you say, okay, then everyone puts their hands up, we agree. And then I say, you say that, that uh, for example, that Sheikh uh, Walid Basuni is not a patch on Sheikh Abu Isa, for example. Yeah? <laughs> Which, subhanAllah, actually is true. It's not even a lie. But, yani, <laughs> but let's just assume for his sake, if when he comes in, I don't know where he is, but if 
he ever hears that, yeah? Because we don't want to, we don't, oh. <laughs> So, so, hey, I don't get mad, I get even. Allah, <laughs> said, I don't get mad, I get even, huh? Allah, that's the problem, that's the problem. That's the problem. Shaz, can you get rid of one of these chairs, please? <laughs> so, uh, if I now pay you to make that statement, okay, I've got control over this group of people because I've paid you, you're all going to go out there. You all colluded to lie, okay, and present a statement. But if at the same time that that statement is made, a group of 200 are saying it exactly the same over there, another 200 over there, another 200 over there. So now what we're understanding is that the geographical distance between groups of people and narrators... And remember, it's not possible for you guys to call. I mean, here it is. But at that time, you couldn't possibly call someone over 2,000 miles and say, listen, when the guy comes, say this. It's taking like literally a year to get down there, right? So if they're narrating that statement here and we're narrating that statement there, so we are now getting an absolute, absolute level of confidence. This confidence is called tawatur. And when we see a narration, whether it's a narration of an ayah of Quran or a hadith, and it has tawatur. At every stage of narration, we have 100% confidence. It's impossible not to have confidence. And it's also at the same time, I should say, not possible, and Allah knows best, to have that same kind of confidence, that same kind of confidence, in a narration which has only been narrated by single people. By single people. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And that's why there's this idea of definitive and possibility. Definitive and possibility. And I just want to say to you that, you know when it comes to the, what you might say, what is the defining number <coughs> that has to exist at each level to define tawatur? The scholars differed over that. The muhaddithin. Some said uh, uh, over four. Literally, just four is enough. And <coughs> others said ten. Others said uh, thirty. Imam al-Ghazali, I think he narrates a number of opinions. He said forty, seventy. And the muhaddithin, they differed. They differed over the exact number. The exact number is irrelevant. The point is, is that you have that confidence. Now, let's get back to Khabar Ahad. All right? These singular narrations, they can be divided into at least, at least three categories. The first category is what I've told you already, which is the category of Gharib. That means that at any stage of this hadith, there's only a single narrator. What I mean by that is, for example, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, let's think of a... Uh, a, uh, I'm to think of a khabar, uh, hadith. Khabar, uh, uh, the Prophet, the Prophet sallam, for example, he said, uh, that the uh, safar traveling is a is a is a portion of punishment. Okay, this hadith is a well-known hadith. Okay. That traveling is a portion of punishment. And what that means basically is that when you're, when you're traveling, you don't have your full kind of, you know, your, you don't have your creature comforts, you don't have your, your food and your family and all that kind of thing. And you're stressed out and so on and so forth. Yeah? So this hadith has been narrated from the Prophet ﷺ by Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Okay? And it was, it was narrated from Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu by Abu Salih. Abu Salih, one of the tabi'een, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the most well-known imams and there is a chain which was narrated by Imam Malik okay now there are a number of chains actually and there's a difference of opinion in this but I'm just going to go by what my own uh, sheikh told me um, 
And that is that Malik does have a riwayah, Imam Malik has a narration for this hadith, which comes from Yahya bin Abi Salih, the son of Abu Salih, who, in his opinion, narrated directly from Abu Huraira, radiallahu an. This itself is a controversial statement, okay? But let's just accept the argument. So this chain would be Malik, who narrated from Yahya bin Abi Salih, who narrated from Abu Huraira, it should be really from his father, and then narrated from Abu Huraira, who narrated from the Prophet ﷺ. There's three or four generations of narrators, 150 odd years going by, 100 years uh, going by. And at each stage, there's only one person, one person. This is a classic Khabar Ahad, a singular narration. And from these singular narrations, it is a gharib hadith, because it's one, one, and one all the way. Is that clear? And I want you to know that in general, gharib hadith like this, that come under the category of khabar ahad, are weak, in general. In fact, Imam Ahmed, he had a very famous statement. He said, don't write the gharib hadith. Basically, he is, he's making a very generalized statement, but what he's trying to say is that more likely than not, you dabbling in the gharib hadith, they're probably going to be weak. They're probably going to be weak. But I want you to know that Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, we accept a gharib hadith, even if it's only narrated by singular narrators all the way through the chain, if it is authentic, they met each other, they fulfill all the conditions of the meeting, and as individual narrators, filling all of the gaps, no, no uh, hidden faults, their memories intact, everything is fulfilling the, hadith, the conditions of an authentic hadith, and that's a continuous chain back to the Prophet ﷺ, then that hadith is sahih. And that, is me, that means that we will rule on that hadith in an authentic fashion. That's the majority of the scholars. That's the majority of the scholars. And even if we have to use that hadith in something important, even if we had to use it in the matters of aqidah, then we're still going to use it in the matters of aqidah. Okay? So, I just want to just quickly run by the few other versions of the khabar uh, ahad. We have the uh, second form, which is the hadith, which is called hadith aziz. Aziz is all, the second category of Khabar Ahad. And here, the, the number of people in each generation is two to three people. Two to three people. So remember before we said one person only, but now we can increase the number to two to three. And then the third category of the Hadith Ahad, or Khabar Ahad, is the Hadith which is called Mashhur. Mashhur, which can be maybe translated as, as well, it means more popularly known, more famous. And by, by that, we are talking four narrators. Four narrators at each stage. Let me give an example. The Prophet ﷺ narrates a hadith to Abu Huraira. But Abu Huraira then narrates it to three individual people. But those three individual people, okay, they then narrate it to one single person. To one single person. And then that one single person then narrates it onto maybe five and then that then goes into a book, collected by Malik, for example. What do you think the ruling on that narration would be? How do you understand that? That we have a one, and we have a three, and then we have a one, and then we have a five, for example. What category do you think you're going to place that hadith in? After saying to you that the gharib is one, that the aziz is two or three, and that the mashur is four. What do you think? Gharib, who said that? Yeah, why is that? Good. And that's the position of the majority of the muhaddithin. Okay, there is difference in this. 
And we don't want to go into too much of that detail, but I just want to explain to you that it's the weakest link that we focus on. The weakest link. And so if we see a singular narrator in there, that's the one that we're going to focus on and we're going to bring that hadith down to the, to the level of gharib. Now when we say we want the hadith to be aziz, we want that number to be there consistent at every level. So we want a couple of companions to have heard it to, to have narrated to a couple of tabi'een, to a couple more of tabi'een and so on and so forth. We want that. Normally these things will go like a pyramid. It should increase. We don't expect a hadith to go like that. And then, do you understand what I'm saying? So we are, yani, you know, we, we want to ask the question, what's going on? So this is the, this is the, uh, um, this is the, uh, uh, the way that the Khabar uh, Ahad are divided. And of course, Abu Hanifa, he is basically saying that if any hukam, any ruling, any action comes to me via way of a Khabar Ahad, via way of a single narration, whether it is gharib, whether it is aziz, or whether it is mashhur, I'm not going to give it the status of wajib, of, of, of fard. I'm going to give it the status of wajib. He's basically saying, I've found enough reason. I've found enough doubt. I've got enough excuse to now bring this hadith down from to, to the ruling of fard. And therefore apply the ruling of wajib. And that's why uh, uh, the Hanafi scholars, they considered to recite... Uh, when you're standing in salah, I'll give you an example. In salah, the only obligation with respect to reciting is something from the Quran. Something from the Quran, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ And recite something which is easy for you from the Quran. Meaning something simple, something basic. Just recite something. That Hanafi say this is clear Quran ayah, any ayah in the Quran which is definitely qat'i uh, thabut, uh, it is very clearly established in terms of authenticity. This is also qat'i uh, dalala, it is clearly indicating very simple thing, i.e., reciting of Quran. It doesn't mean putting the Quran on your head, it doesn't mean putting your Quran in your pocket, it means reciting the Quran. And so, therefore, we can't take two meanings from this. Therefore, it's obligatory to recite something in the, in the prayer. Now the rest of the scholars, what do they what do they say? What is obligatory to recite? The Fatiha. But the Hanafis they turned around and they said, Well, no, we're not going to make the reciting of Fatiha an obligation of fard in the prayer because its its obligation to recite comes to us via a khabar ahad. It comes to us via a singular narration. And because of that reason, we will not lift the ruling up to obligatory, we will bring it down to wajib. We will bring it down to wajib. Now, what's the ultimate consequence of that? The consequence would be if a person was to come and say, I refuse to, and he's like a shafi'i, for example, I refuse to uh, recite the fatiha. There's no such thing of, uh, such as reciting fatiha in the prayer. And you watch me now. And he goes, Allahu Akbar, qulhu Allahu ahad, Allahu samad, Allahu Akbar. He just recites two ayahs and he goes, you know, to hell with you, who do you think you are? Right? The Shafi'i scholars will come down upon that guy like a ton of bricks. They'll say, kufar, this, that, denied what's well known, blah, 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 blah. And this is a hypothetical scenario. If he said that in the Hanafi school, okay, the Hanafis would not declare takfir of this person. They would not declare takfir of this person because for them, the reciting of Fatiha Aslan, even actually in the prayer itself, is not something which has been established by al qati Thibut or al qati Dalala. Okay, in this case, qati Dalala. So this is, the, uh, this, is, this is very important for us, and we have to spend time on it right now, because the concept of Fard and Wajib 
is essential. Uh, it's going to come so many times now. Now that we've gone through water and, and all that kind of general stuff, and now we're getting into specific legal rulings, then it is something which is important. Um, I think, I think that that's enough law, I think. Is it enough? Huh? Sheikh Walid, is that enough? Sheikh Walid is embarrassed now. Sheikh Walid, you're never embarrassed. Is that enough or not? You want to get, you want to get even? Yeah, I would always like to hear you more. Okay. <laughs> then. Very good. Let's continue. Right. <laughs> Don't give me an invitation here, Sheikh. Let's actually, let me, um, let me just say one, one other, um, uh, let's just actually, at least we can say that we covered the title, yeah? So let's at least cover the title. So we've done the, the concept of fard and furud. Now the word wudu. And the word wudu is an interesting uh, 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 word as well. Um, and I just want to, so before I go on to the word uh, wudu, I want to mention that when we use the word fard, there is, it's also possible for that also to have synonyms as well, okay? And in different times, in different cases, they will have, um, it'll be clear. For example, when we come to cover the prayer, you'll, you'll see that we need to have more than just a simple differentiation between actions that are fard and sunnah. Okay? Sometimes we have to have shurut, conditions or prerequisites. Then we need to have arkan, which are pillars, you know, essentials. Then we have the actions which are obligatory, like the wajibat or the fard. And then we have the sunan, which are the, the recommended acts. And then we might even have a further, uh, for example, in the Shafi'i Madhab, they have other actions which are likes, you know, they kind of give it like a, a, a like a, I don't know, almost they put it in the chapter of Adab almost, okay? Or to make, or to beautify the action. So they will use different ones. I want to say to you that most often the word Fard is referring to the word Rukan. And so Furud here is referring to Arkan. Arkan meaning the pillars. So when we're now talking about the the uh, furud being six, okay, the obligations being six, it's like we're saying that the pillars, uh, the pillars of wudu are also six, and the um, and I want you to know that that when we say something is um, uh, a a, a rukan, or when we say that something is obligatory to that, that, to that level, it's because we understand that that is the essence of the act. If you were to say, how do we define, when we have like a verse or a hadith, how do we define these are the absolute obligations or the pillars? It's because when you study it, you can see that what's being quoted and stated are the actual essence of the act. They're always done repetitive, repetitively. They're never left out by the, by the, by the Prophet ﷺ or by the companions, etc., etc. And just finally then, the the word wudu and the word wudu is derived from wada'a and wada'a is a word which indicates purity and beauty and cleanliness and radiance and 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 brilliance and of course um, what's 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 interesting is that uh, if you think of when you think of the word radiance and brilliance you're talking about light aren't you yes when you, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a cleanliness aspect as well. And I want you to remember that last week, you know, people were saying, why is it, isn't, isn't uh, a wudu meant to clean? Or isn't tahara meant to clean? Uh, uh, and I said that no. Because cleaning, physical cleaning, can be done in a number of ways. And the best way that we know, for example, is to use alcohol. 
Huh? And the best way is to use strong good soaps, for example. But neither of the two have been obligated in wudu. So we know that the real essence of wudu, okay, is, is a spiritual one. Because hadith, what is, what's the definition of hadith? Ritual impurity. It doesn't mean dirt. What's dirt? What's, what's, what's the Arabic word for physical impurity? Najasa, yes? The word najas means something which is disgusting, like, like urine or something like that. That's najas. But a hadith, or to be in a state of hadith, is being you're ritually impure. It doesn't mean you're physically impure. You might go, for, for example, you might go to the toilet... And you might go on, these, on one of these, like, you know, one of these toilets that Sheikh Walid has. You know, these, like, uh, Tokyo toilets, you know? Uh, he has that, what is the Japanese toilet, Sheikh, or is it the to- Tokyo toilet? And what it does is that it gives you, like, yani, mashallah, valley service. It cleans you, and it washes you, and it heats you, and it, I don't know, it wipes you. And then it does everything. It's amazing. Okay? You come out of that number two cleaner than you went in. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So now this person, can he go and pray? He can't. Because he's, a, he's in a state of impurity, physical impurity. No, I just said to you, he's actually come out of the toilet cleaner than he went in. But he's not allowed to pray because he's in a ritual state of impurity. Meaning that he has to do now the wudu to allow him to pray. Okay then, if he goes and makes the wudu. You know, Shaykh Walid, mashallah, he is, you know, he's muttaqi, yani mashallah, yani uh, zahid. He only uses this much water for wudu. Okay, this is how much Sheikh Walid, because he knows it's sunnah to use qillat al and so on. And so, when Sheikh Walid is using this much water, do you think it's going to clean anything? It's not going to clean anything, is it? It will get his wudu done, he'll tick all the boxes, okay? I don't get mad, I get even, huh? 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 Yeah? Okay? <laughs> so, he's not going to wash himself in absolute clean. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yet, he will make wudu properly, Okay, we know that the Sunnah of the Prophet yani joking aside, is a the uh, mud, uh, yani, which is just a handful. Okay, and so that is should be enough to make wudu properly. There's enough water in that uh, uh, two hands full to pour water over the face and to wash and to this, that, whatever. So clearly, I want you to know that if I was to use a bucket, I'm going to clean my body more. So there, we have to understand that yes, no doubt, if there's some dirt there, then it's going to physically get rid of that dirt. But the ask the meaning of wudu. It's not actually to physically clean. And that's why the word wada is talking about radiance and brilliance and beauty. And that's because the actual beauty and the whiteness and the beauty is something of the akhirah. And we know that the Prophet Sallallahu he, he said that uh, my companions who are always uh, 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 focusing on cleaning themselves with the water and exceeding the, exceeding the minimums and going like high and washing up and so on, they will be called... They will be called on a day of 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 uh, of qiyamah. They will be uh, seen and they will be recognized very very easily. They will be ghurran muhajjalin. They will be shining. Their areas of wudu will be shining bright white. Yani, you know, like something very kind of nurani. You know, when we use the word nurani, right? Lots of kind of beautiful radiant light. So I want you to know that the actual and that's why in English, the translation for wudu isn't wash; it's ablution. And the word ablution is actually a Christian religious word for a ritual wash. It's not to physically clean, it means to fulfill a spiritual function. So that's the closest translation. That's why ablution is the only word that we should use in the English language. So that's where the word wudu comes from. Um, that's its basis. Anyway, that's good, alhamdulillah. We at least did the title, right?
which is good. That's, that's good progress for us normally. صح? So I'd like to invite Jazawallah uh, Khair, Sheikh Naved, Sheikh Walid al Basuni, Sheikh, who else is going to come and give us some, uh, I think Sheikh Yasser al Qadi. Is Al Qadi or is this just Qadi? Qadi. Sheikh Yasser al Qadi. <laughs> for me it's Yara. No, for me it's something else. When you sit down, you will realize then. Huh? And then we also have uh, Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda. Yalla, what's happening, man? What's going on? You want, you want some music or something? Yeah, everyone's sitting there. Huh? It's like at the Oscars, you're waiting for the intro music to come on. Khalas, yani, I said your name, man. That's enough, man. Sheikh Abdul Nasser, if you come around this side. So I thought it'd be nice, mashallah, it'd be, it'd be good uh, to, to share in the blessings um, of having these esteemed uh, friends of mine and instructors to share uh, something. I'll tell you something interesting. First of all, let me explain and introduce. First, on my right-hand side, we have Sheikh Walid al-Basyuni, who is the granddaddy of al-Maghrib. He is in age only. Yeah? <laughs> Sorry, he likes to be he likes to be known as young and fresh, but yani, you know, we know something different. Sheikh uh, Sheikh Walid Jazallah uh, Khair is uh, has been teaching al Aqidah al-Wasitiyah here, and uh, you know everyone knows actually. You've, LP is our old friend. He's been making for, uh, videos for us, um, and he's taught a logical progression a couple of times before. Mashallah. Uh, on my immediate right. I have Ming the Merciless. Um, <laughs> I, I kept saying I kept saying Ming the Merciless, and no one was able to connect. Sheikh Yasser Qadi has blessed us, Yani, in this trip with the most slick new garments, Yani, that we've never seen. Mashallah. And he's currently, Bismillah, Mashallah, Tabarakallah. We made dua for him already. I don't know if it worked or not. That's the problem. The this one, mashallah, is a, is a wonderful little number. Mashallah. And as I said, it has, this, it has a great collar. Mashallah. And the collar, wallahi, reminds me of Mingda Merciless. You remember Flash Gordon? Yeah? Back in the day? So, mashallah, he's the king of fashion. The other day, subhanAllah, who was wearing a Star Trek uniform. Did you see the blue one? Yeah? He's, he's so cool. I love Star Trek. What's wrong with Star Trek? Is anything wrong with Star Trek? I was so happy. Every day I watched Star Trek as a teenager. Ajib. Every single day. Ajib. I mean, I mean. a new generation, generation, next generation, or yes, the next generation? Picard. Yes, Picard. Yes. Data. Who's your favorite character? <clears throat> and not in front of this. Okay, no, khalas. <laughs> but I was just saying, it had these you know, beautiful shower pads and whatever. And I think you guys know Sheikh Naved Azizullah Khair. I don't. I can't say anything bad about Sheikh Naved because he just smiles and then I melt and whatever. <laughs> And then we have at the end Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda, who's some guy from America, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares. It works, I tell you, it works every time. <laughs> it works every time. I want to say that because it's fair, you have to give due credit, okay? He's making this a huge attempt to try and make everyone uh, convert to American football, but as you know, it's a complete waste of time. But I'll give him great credit. He has invented the greatest hashtag ever. Hashtag nobody cares, okay? <laughs> Honestly, and the problem is, is that what upsets me about that hashtag is that he used it on the Canadians. You know, when he goes, who's from Canada? Everyone goes, I'm from Canada. He goes, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think is very nice, you know? But it's a great hashtag and I'm stealing it. And, but he needs, Yanni, some kind of credit at, at least every time that I use it. So, I want to give a little introduction to uh, what I want the speakers to do. On Christmas Day, 
<laughs> because we have someone who, mashallah, doesn't mind any controversy with respect to Christmas Day, okay? Right, okay? On Christmas Day in the UK, um, what we have is the uh, Christmas message, right? By, by uh, our, our Royal Highness, Queen Elizabeth. Stand up here, or is it going to go out of the camera? Anyway, you know, just you know. So she will give a three o'clock message, or five minutes past three, and we all sit round. You know, your mum's there. You know, wants to listen, and so we all support her. We sit round, and we all smile nicely, and she gives some kind of very basic kind of uh, review and some shares some of her kind of anecdotes. So in the last couple of years, Channel Four which is like the fourth of the terrestrial channels. Because okay? um, we, we don't have five now, but it's the fourth of the terrestrial channels. Um, it came up with the idea of the alternative Christian, uh, Christmas message. So every, every uh, year you have the, the, the official one, and then you have like some freaked out one. Okay? And to the extent that, I, mean, I think three, four years ago, it was a Niqabi sister, she gave the message. Yeah? Do anyone remember that one? Yeah, it was Niqabi sister, about four or five years ago. And then they might give it to some kind of punk or some pope or some, I don't know, whatever. So I thought that what would be good, considering that we're doing wudu, is that instead of these guys sharing something kind of, you know, like uh, ruhani or something, whatever, about wudu, I thought I would ask them each to share with us their favorite wudu story <laughs> as an alternative chapter of wudu. I did all the boring part, I get hated upon, no problem. These guys get the credit and the laughs, they walk away laughing, yeah? So I thought that we'd do that. Is that, is that okay, good idea? Yeah. To end off the, the, the session? So we, inshallah, we'll give it to Sheikh Walid Al-Basyuni. Hafizahullah ta'ala wa ra'ah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa ala ba'ah. First of all, it's uh, always a great honor to uh, be with Abu Isa in his, live uh, in his class, uh, Logical Progression. And it's always great to be with his students. We get so lucky to have him, the students of LED. Or what is it? LED. <laughs> 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 oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Well, I... MD, uh, MDF, 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 So, if there is anything I just want to say uh, about the work, something before I tell you the funny story, uh, something I, I, I really would like you to pay attention to, when they spoke about the, like the majority of the fuqaha, the Sheikh Mashallah spent most of the time explaining the Hanafi position uh, on the differentiation between and wa and wajib, even though majority of the Muslim jurists don't believe in the differentiation between them. But there is a very important concept I want you to pay attention to it that all the fuqaha agree upon, which is that all the obligatory uh, actions in Islam or the things that we consider obligation in Islam is, are not in the same level. Some of them are higher level than others. And I thought this is a very important point to be always kept in mind. Personally, when I study fiqh, when I always look at the ahnaf, when they talk about the fab and how they put it like on the top of the wajib, it give me that uh, emphasis, that idea, of basically emphasis on the idea that the wajibat, the obligations in Islam are not one level. So always keep that in mind, because people think that 
the religion is like black and white. So if it's haram, all of them the same level. If it's wajib, all of them the same level. They are not like that. It is like uh, when they say salam alaikum to you, you say wa alaikum salam. It's wajib for you to reply my salam. So that's obligation on you. I sneeze, say alhamdulillah, you hear me? According to majority of the Bukaha, you wanted to tell me alhamdulillah. But no one ever will say this level of, of this level uh, or this obligatory action cannot be compared to the obligation of taking care of your parents or being good to your uh, Muslim brothers and to give nasiha to each other. They are various. So keep that in mind. The Fuqaha very smart in the way they classify the fiqh into different uh, categories and, and different levels. And just for the record, if somebody interested, I think one of the Fuqaha, he's muhaddit and in the same time great usuli, who put so much emphasis on this and did a great uh, work, on it, which is an Imam Ibn Hibban, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his Sahih. Actually, he classified his Sahih, Sahih Ibn Hibban, based on the level of the obligations and the recommendation acts. He classified them to 360-some levels between wajibat, wajib, recommended, <coughs> dislike, or makro, and muharram. And his work is unmatched in the history. As far as I know, I don't know anyone have put so much thoughts and effort to classify the wajibat in this way and the uh, sunan to this level. And I think his muqaddimah, worth yani, uh, for the student knowledge advance among you online to study it and to look at it because it's, it's one of its kind. It's one of its kind. As for the story that I would like to share to share with you today, uh, I had two stories of debate on but I, I chose one of them, uh, which has happened to me personally. We went once in uh, Saudi Arabia. We went to Al-Bab, to the desert. We camping in the desert. And at that time, we don't have cell phones, uh, you know, it was cold nights, so we had the tent and surrounded with the car, and we were sleeping. And we have the habit that we something call someone who will guard the time. Someone have all, all the night outside, and we switch, like one hour, then he switch another, wake up somebody else. So he will wake up to watch for one hour, so we don't miss Fajr. We don't miss Fajr. So to watch out for the time of the Fajr. So one of the brothers, he passed away. Uh, he's, mashallah, very, yeah, he loved to serve the brothers, to take care of them. So he decided to warm the water for us for wudu uh, before we wake up for salt. It's very cold. And it's very cold, windy outside. So inside the tent, it's a big tent. Okay, we're about 20, 21 persons in that tent. So he went to the corner, he put the uh, fire, it's like a cylinder, he put the water, like the pot on it, and he went looking for, he's sleeping, he just wake up, looking for the water to put it on the pot to warm the water. And instead of picking the water, he took the gasoline. <laughs> so he's walking and he has a cold, he said, I couldn't even smell the difference. <laughs> everybody's sleeping, okay? So he, and now the pot is hot. And he take the gavel and he put it. The moment he put it, on his face. So the nice guy, what he did, he threw the, the container on the side, which is gasoline, and he held, took the pot and started running outside the tent. So he's running in between, like he's sleeping like this. 
So literally, I woke up fire on my feet because he's running on the fire left and right. And man, I woke up and every fire, fire. So we rushed outside. The door was like very tidy. And the poor guy got like his whole clothes got fire. So I literally have to run after him. And when someone fire, he runs. The more he runs, the more dangerous his life is. So I pushed him to the ground, rolling in the tent. Everybody's out, alhamdulillah, safe. So now the, the, the fire is getting bigger. So we're walking towards the tent. All of a sudden, one of the brothers has a handgun <laughs> for protection. There's a desert, and he had underneath his pillow with a box of bullets. And then we jump behind the cars. Until all the pillows like were off. Then after they said, who's like, somebody sell himself for the sake of Allah and go see what's happening inside. So one of the said, I'll do it. By the time he goes to the tent, all of a sudden the cylinder blow up. Wallahi, the whole tent, it's a huge tent, it's like that big tent, like the, the, the table from here to there. The whole tent, the top of it went like about, I'll say, 50 meters in the sky, boom, like this, unkindled. And all of the, we're all trying to get inside. Why? Because we want the keys for our cars. <laughs> our cars around the tent. And we scared the, the whole car. Anyway, after this whole thing finished, we barely made fetch all the time. <laughs> Probably with Tayammum, because all the water gone. So, not a single key. We could, we, we were, I think one key only we found was like one of the smallest car we have. All the keys between milk, we don't know where is it. So we're stuck in the middle of the desert. So it was like a very good experience <laughs> <laughs> to see how it would be. Sheikh, were you, making, were you making wudu or were you making a movie? <laughs> That's the movie. That's the movie. That's, that's, it sounds like na- na- national, national Lampoon's Wudu. <laughs> that's only I'll never forget. It comes Wudu. <laughs> Good luck, Yasser. With, with that explosive combination, khalas. Talk about raising the bar, raising the tent here. Bismillah. Actually, I don't have too much of a funny story, believe it or not. Uh, I actually had a fa'idah to share with you uh, talking about the issue of Wudu. And uh, <clears throat> to be honest, wudu is one of my personal favorite actions of worship when you read the blessings of wudu. <laughs> and one of my personal favorite hadith about wudu is actually a hadith that has a lot of theology and a lot of adab and a little bit of fiqh in it as well. And that is the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal in Sunan al-Tirmidhi or in Jami' al-Tirmidhi that our Prophet sallallahu Mu'adh ibn Jabal narrated that one day he was late for Fajr and we waited and waited and waited for him until finally he rushed outside and he quickly prayed. And usually he prays long fajr. He prayed a short fajr. And then he turned around and he motioned to us to sit down, remain in your places. I will explain to you why I was late. And then he gave one of the most intriguing hadith that to this day puzzles scholars is the topic of a number of treatises. The theologians go wild over it. Uh, the, the, the fuqaha, the, the etiquette, they don't know what to do with it all because it's a very deep hadith. It's a profound hadith. And I won't have time to go into all of the sharh, but two minutes inshallah and then we're done. And that is, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said that I was praying last night, uh, in the night, and while I was in sajda, basically I fell asleep. I fell asleep while I was in sajda. And I found myself 
in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the best of all images. Fi ahsani surah. I saw him in the best of all images. Now first pause here. Footnote. This is the big controversy of theology. How could the Prophet see Allah Azza wa Jalla when Musa didn't see him? The response, the majority of Ahlul Sunnah say that it is allowed for the Prophets to see Allah in a dream and not in a wakeful state. This is the uh, Ibn Kathir and others, the Ibn Taymiyyah and others, this is their interpretation. That they are not seeing Allah the way we see something because they're not awake. This is a seeing of the dream, which is a different seeing. It's not the seeing of the sight. So, and I saw my Lord in the best of all images. And he asked me, Ya Muhammad Wasallam. And I said, Labbaik. So we get a fa'idah here. This is how we respond to Allah. When Allah Azza wa Jal calls, we, says, we say, Labbaik. And that is why another fa'idah, when we are called for the hajj, our response to the hajj is Labbaik. Because Allah is calling us for the hajj. So the Prophet said, Labbaik. So that Allah Azza wa Jal asks him, what are the highest angels arguing about? What are the highest angels debating, if you like? And this shows us that, firstly, the angels are of ranks, and the higher they are, the better they are. And secondly, that the topic of discussion of the angels is about blessings and about good matters. And even angels ask questions, and even angels debate. So it's not anything wrong to wonder what and what not. So the angels are yakhtasim, they're debating. What are they debating? The most noblest of deeds. What are those noble deeds? That which are the best deeds that a man can do. So the inquisitiveness of the angels is about this. So the, uh, the Prophet ﷺ was asked this question, he said, I don't know. Allah asked him three times, we're going quickly here, and he kept on saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And this shows us the humility when you don't know, even if you're Rasulullah, you say, I don't know. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So, and now here's another theologically loaded statement. The Prophet ﷺ said, My Lord placed his yad, which in English translates as hand, My Lord placed his yad on my chest, so much so that I could feel the coldness of his fingernails or his fingers. I could feel the, the, the breeze or the gentleness of his fingernails, the coldness of his fingernails. My Lord placed his yad on my chest until I could feel the coldness of his nails or his fingertips and everything in the heavens and earth was made clear to me. Everything in the heavens and earth was made clear to me. Then he removed his hand and he asked me again. And I responded immediately. So we benefit here that there is a type of divine ilham, wahi or inspiration that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly inspires in the servants. Ibn Qayyim lists six or seven or eight types of wahi, one of them being that direct inspiration without any angel. Here Allah is directly informing the Prophet of something. And so immediately the Prophet when he was asked now, he says, fil kafarati wa darajat. He said immediately, the angels are arguing about two things. What are the things that forgive the sins the most? And what are the things that raise the ranks the most? And this shows us another benefit. And that is that we, all of us, every one of us, have to concentrate on two matters. Number one, how to forgive our sins. Number two, how to gain Allah's blessings. And the two are independent, and the two are not mutually exclusive, rather they're mutually required. You need the both of them together. So, فِي darajat. We need to forgive our sins and raise our ranks. So Allah said, what are the kafarat? And here is the point of the shahid of the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said that the kafarat are uh, that kathratul uh, mashi ila al-jama'at many footsteps to the jama'at and intadarul salawat uh, that sitting after the salawat waiting for the next salah, right? 
and uh, doing wudu fil makruhat. Isbaghul wudu fil makruhat. So number one, walking lots of steps to the jama'at, meaning you walk into the masjid all the time. Number two, waiting for one salah in the masjid for the next salah. You just sit there and you're waiting and you have nothing else to do other than the prayer. And then number three, and that's the shahid of our topic over here, that itmam or isbaghul wudu'i fil makruhat, perfecting your wudu in times of difficulty. Then Allah asked, what are the darajat? And then he mentioned feeding the poor and uh, praying at night. That feeding the yatim and praying at night, these are the darajat, how you uplift yourself. Now, this hadith is a famous hadith and it's a lot of beautiful points. And it's not really a funny story. And besides, I thank Allah I'm not doing a funny story because there's no competition with the explosion <laughs> over here. Forget that. But it is something that for the last few years, really, you have been hearing me lecture about one very important theme. Even my latest lecture about white chocolate mocha was about the same thing. And that is the difference between book knowledge and real life knowledge. The difference between kutub and waqa. The difference between reading and theory and between practice. Now, wallahi, I had read this hadith, alhamdulillah, so many times. It's in Riyadh al-Salihin. It's in Al-Tirmidhi. This and that. And it never really struck me the reality of isbaghul wudu'i fil makruhat until I was in my first year of Jama Islamiyah, my first year of Medina. Ya Allah has blessed us. We live yani, in the West. We rarely make wudu with cold water. We are always, mashallah, turn on the hot water and we wait, even if we have to wait five minutes. But in winter time, we wait until that water comes. Even if we, we're quick and we do it, we're in our heated homes. Okay, I had never done wudu in an outer or a desert area until my uh, first year of Medina. When in one occasion in November or December, we were going for Umrah. And on the way, it was uh, we left after Isha. So in the middle of the night, 3, 4, or is it 4.30 a.m. or something, we're stopping. So we're going to make wudu and wait for Fajr. And you really cannot explain in words the reality of the cold desert wind. It's really... And you're wearing ihram. And when you're wearing ihram, then... Allah yastur, what can we say? You know what I'm saying? Yani, you're, you feel even more cold in every single aspect, if you know what I'm saying. And on top of this, we didn't have the luxury of having bomb mechanics with us to worry about you know, uh, this and that. We had nothing. We're in the middle of the desert and our bo- water bottles are going to have to do for wudu. And that was the first time in my life that this hadith struck me. The first time in my life that now I understand because I did not want to do wudu. And I did, the last thing I wanted was to rub that water and make sure it goes to every single last joint and bone and put it in my ears and hair and then especially the feet because desert wind, and they say this until you experience, desert wind gets to the bones. Desert wind is not like city wind. Desert wind is a different type of wind. And you feel exposed and the haram makes you exposed. And I'm just saying one nukta or point here and that is that book knowledge is great and fine and dandy. But real knowledge, experience knowledge, live knowledge is a whole different thing. That was the first time in my life that I genuinely appreciated. I was doing this once after 22 years of my life. 22 years of my life. I was 22 years all the time. Once, the first time in the middle of the desert. And I realized our Rasulullah had to do that every single morning throughout the winter months of his life.
every single morning. You wake up and he's in Medina, it's in the desert, and he has to do that. That's when it struck me. Isbaghul wudu'i fil makruhat. That is why it has those blessings. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us of those who perfect these kafarat and also do all of the darajat. And obviously, I have to say, I appreciate Abu Isa's uh, inviting us to the stage. And may Allah Azza wa Jal bless him and all of you students and all of us. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala amma ba'd. So Abu Isa, when I, when I came up earlier on, he told me you have three minutes to share your favorite story about wudu. Um, I was like, three minutes is not a lot of time. But mashallah, looking at Sheikh Walid, the time he took, looking at the time Sheikh Yasser took, obviously that three minutes means something else here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got a bigger slot. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Um, I'll share two quick things with you. One of them is a serious benefit, one of them is a funny benefit. The serious benefit, um, Abu Isa, mashallah, he did a fantastic job explaining the spiritual elements of wudu. And one of the spiritual elements of wudu is when you actually get to learn the wudu from your teacher itself. I remember in my first year of learning Arabic in Medina, our teacher took us out to the desert, Shaykh Ahmed Rashid al And we, after we had prayed Salat al-Maghrib, we had just eaten, and he explained that, you know, after you eat camel meat, you need to make wudu. And then he said, I'm going to take this opportunity to teach you guys how to make wudu. And he took one of these plastic glasses or plastic cups that, you know, if you've been to Saudi Arabia, you'll see that they sell for like one real. And he's like, I'm going to make wudu with this. And for me, that was the first time I was like, that's impossible. You're not going to be able to make wudu with a glass of water. It's not possible. Because, you know, we're used to the taps where we like waste water excessively. And he took this glass of water and very meticulously... He showed us how you can make wudu with even like half of that. And as he explained the hadith of Uthman radiallahu anhu, I thought to myself, subhanAllah, this chain of making wudu, while it's starting with my shaykh right now, it's going all the way back to Uthman radiallahu anhu, who learned it from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that was like a, a very uplifting moment for me. As showing you this great tradition in Islam where we're not coming up with our own rulings but everything is going back to the greatest of men that walked on the earth to the companions to the greatest of messengers coming from the best of angels going directly back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that was a very uplifting moment in terms of a funny story um, it's my last year in Medina and that year I decided to stay back I didn't go back uh, to Canada after that summer and one of the very first days there was an etiquette that you were supposed to know living in Medina, but I didn't know. And that etiquette was that after Fajr, you need to store the water if you want to make wudu. Because the taps get so hot, you'll burn yourself. So the first day, uh, as I'm staying back, I went to the bathroom, went to go make wudu. I turned the tap on, and this is, you have two taps. You have cold and you have hot. I said, you know, let me turn the cold tap on. Inshallah, it'll get cold. I left it running for like a minute or two. And I thought, you know, it should be cold by now. But there's no such thing as a water cooler there. You have a water heater, but you don't have a water cooler. I put my finger in, and I screamed like a girl. I was like, ah! <laughs> and then I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe there's something wrong in the pipes. Let me try the hot water. <laughs> I turned the hot water tap on. I tried to get with that. And you hear a louder scream. That was the only funny story I had with it. That was it. <laughs> It's funny that you think it's funny.
It really shows dedication when students commit themselves, you know, um, with all of this material available, you know, teachers and shiul conducting classes, even online, regularly, consistently, no matter where they're at. Um, and then people still come up and they're like, I want to learn something, what should I do? Um, there's really not many excuses, mashallah, it's readily available if somebody's dedicated enough, inshallah. So uh, may Allah SWT accept and grant uh, everyone, may Allah grant you consistency, inshallah. Um, so about wudu, mashallah, the shiuch said really, some really beautiful things. And one of the things I was going to mention, what Sheikh Naveed just said, and that was about the fact that wudu is this beautiful practice that takes us back directly to the Prophet And building on the point that he mentioned about, there are like 16 different sahaba, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when you go through the collections of hadith, there are like 16 different companions of the Prophet who relate learning wudu directly from the Prophet it's a very powerful, beautiful thing and idea. And Sheikh Yasser specifically turned, talked about taking the books and implementing them in real life. So part of, uh, I guess, a reminder I wanted to share with the students and also a little bit of a funny story, not quite as hilarious as Sheikh Navid's story, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless. Hashtag who cares. <laughs> so, but a little bit of a funny story, and that is, you know, um, we need to take that, that, that idea from the Prophet Sallallahu he was, like a, he was like a spiritual father, like a teacher to all of his companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum. And especially for our children, one of the things I complain about to our uh, Muslim community in America is that we outsource the religious education of our children. Where are they going to learn wudu? That's what Sunday school is for. That's what Islamic school is for. That's what the maktab is for. That's what the, you know, the teacher at the masjid is for. We need to teach our kids how to make wudu. Just like you see the cute little kid, you know, who makes sujood next to his father. Similarly, teach our, teach our children how to make wudu. I learned how to make wudu from my dad. And so when my Maryam was, my, my elder daughter, she's six years old now, alhamdulillah. Uh, when she, you know, the kids get old enough to start following you around. They start following you around everywhere, year and a half, two years old. So when it was time to make wudu, I kind of opened up the door a little bit, let her watch me make wudu. Um, and she would watch me make wudu every single day. And then she's not, she wasn't big enough, tall enough to reach the sink. But we have like these water dispensers like you have here um, for drinking water. So we have one of those in the kitchen. And one day I come into the kitchen, my wife's screaming, what's going on here? And I was like, okay, okay what's up? What's going on? And she's like, look. And Mariam's standing there like pushing the thing on, making wudu. Aww. <laughs> All right. And... The whole kitchen is flooded. And uh, I was like, oh, mashallah, she's making wudu. And then my wife said, mashallah, you cannot clean up. <laughs> so, but uh, inshallah, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to, to make wudu, as you heard from the shayyuk, the mashayyuk. The Prophet some said, these body parts that we wash, you know, uh, on the day of judgment, they're going to glow. Sheikh Abu Isa was just saying about wada'a, they're going to glow. They'll shine. You'll, people, you you'll be able to identify one another. People will be able to identify you from far away. It's really, really a beautiful thing. And in the West, a lot of times, you know, in non-Muslim majority countries, wudu is a very awkward thing, uh, especially like in the professional workplace and whatnot. 
um, you know, where there's majority Muslims like Pakistan or Egypt or Birmingham, it's a little bit easier, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit, it, it can be awkward, you know, the foot in the sink moment and all that kind of stuff, but uh, always take pride in doing your wudu. So next time you're doing wudu and some non-Muslim walks in, they're kind of like, oh my God, be like, yeah, what's up, I'm watching my <laughs> You know, stay, take pride in it, inshallah. I just I have think an announcement to make no. about tomorrow, whenever you think. Okay. Okay. I think that will conclude uh, for logical progression, certainly online. And uh, for the students who are here, if you just said, uh, stay seated. I'd like to thank the Mashaykh Sheikh Abdel Nasser Jamda, Sheikh Nabil Aziz, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, Sheikh Khalid Bissioni. Uh, I'd like to thank Asad, uh, Noor, uh, Ali, Imad, Omar Rana, the organizers, Qabilat uh, Shams, and all of the Qabail that have put together this great uh, event. Uh, I'd like to thank all the students who are LP students and. Huh? The LED students. Yes, the LP students. You know, I just want to say, you know, everyone, everyone knows how much Shazada Miskin gets cussed, huh? And for many of you, you're actually seeing Shazada in the, in, the, in the flesh. He didn't even get dinner, man. And it was, oh. it was, it was Christmas dinner today, wasn't oh. it? Yeah. <laughs> That's why he didn't eat Mu'ahid, ya MashaAllah. See that? He said that. He I, know, I know you ate for me, huh? No, no I didn't even, even I didn't get to eat. I was I eating. Saw you eat. No, no. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wait, wait. Let me tell you, Kamran is my witness. I started eating, and then some Yanni Miskin uh, from Montreal, okay, he has no right to say anything. He comes over and he says, but you're going to be burping all the way through. <laughs> Can you believe that? This is um, two, two spoons in. And then I turned to the people and they said, well, he's got a point. <laughs> so I had to leave the food. So anyway, khair, alhamdulillah. I hope everyone benefited. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I also have a uh, okay, tomorrow, inshallah, for the uh, therapy uh, class, it will be with Sheikh